0: December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. The events. The deep questions. (laughs) It's hardcore history. If you're like me, you like history for finding out what happened, you know, in a timeline of events, but one of the things you probably also get a kick out of, because I know I do, is playing the what-if game when it comes to history. You know, think about alternative outcomes and Pivotal moments, some historians have called those hinge factors, when history swings in another direction. It's fun to think what the possible ramifications might have been had the British won the Revolutionary War, for example. The American colonists are crushed by the Redcoats, and a hundred years later, Great Britain still has... The United States in its Commonwealth the way it had Canada and Australia, New Zealand and those places. its Fascinating stuff. One of the fun parts about history. I used to love the Back to the Future movies, the ones with Michael J. Fox where he would go back in time or sometimes go forward in time. Because I love the little ramifications and the turning points and the places where you make one wrong move and you've changed history forever and all the dominoes that fall over. There were some Simpsons episodes, I think, too, where Homer goes back in time, steps on a bug, and then goes back to his own time, and everything is different. Symbolic, of course, about how one little teeny change somewhere, and the whole future is altered. Well, if you like thinking about that kind of stuff, then one of your favorite years in all of history has to be 1066 one of my favorite years for sure that's the year of course which every british school child had to learn for so long i don't know if they have to anymore that william the conqueror and his normans invaded england and conquered it for the last time in its history and if you actually study the norman invasion of england and the battle of hastings and everything that came out of that You start learning that that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year with so many little hinge factors that could have gone this way or that and how different life would be for all of us today had any one of those little events come to pass or if any of the things that did actually happen failed to happen. As I said, 1066 may be one of the greatest Years, if you wanted to display the tendency of events to fall a certain way, makes you kind of believe in fate after a while. So what was happening in 1066 that led up to all these possible little you know, fault lines in history or paths it might have gone? Well, let's remember what era we're talking about. 1066 is one of those convenient years that historians like to use as a dividing point between one age of history and a new age of history. 1066, nice convenient place to just whap right there. There's the 1065, you were in the Dark Ages. 1067, you were in early medieval times. Well, of course, we know that the people living then had no such concept. But the reason that historians have found that a convenient date, cutoff date for the Dark Ages is that the Battle of Hastings seemed to provide a clear-cut change in the world. Well, especially if you're looking at it from a Western viewpoint. And that change was the ending of Scandinavian and Celtic dominance in what's now the British Isles. And when you say Great Britain, of course, those of you in Great Britain already know this, You're talking about more than traditional England. You're talking about parts of Ireland. You're talking about Scotland and Wales. But for the purpose of what we're talking about, there was a place called England. And the name stems from one of the invading peoples who settled there, the Angles. It's not that hard to go from Angle to Angleland to England, is it? But the Angles and the Saxons, and the Frisians, and the Jutes, all these northern Germanic, southern Danish seafaring peoples, those people invaded England starting in late Roman times. And the Romans had come to England and conquered it from the Celtic people who were there as far back as anyone can tell. I think you're in prehistoric times before you can get below the Celts in the earliness of British ethnography. And after the Romans conquered the Celts, and after the Romans left to go back to Rome, which they had to do, there were pressing problems in the empire, and eventually the people that were an admixture now of races, historians call them the Romano-British because they were Roman and Celtic mixed together. The Romano-British, unlike their Celtic ancestors who painted themselves blue and rode around in chariots, were taking hot baths at the local baths. They were seeing plays in Roman amphitheaters. They were thinking politically like Romans do. Roman culture had come to Britain and civilized the Celtic tribes, some of them anyway. Some of the Celtic tribes were simply pushed farther west into Wales, farther north into... Caledonia, Scotland. Some even came back over the English Channel, founded a place called Brittany in northern France. The name itself seems to call out to a heritage across the water that was lost, doesn't it? But this new admixture of people, these Romano-British folks, were always under pressure because the people to the east of them who lived in Scandinavia who lived in Holland, who lived in northern Germany. Fierce, sea-raiding Germanic people who saw England as an easy mark, especially after the Romans had to leave. And the Saxons were raiding the English eastern coast while the Romans were still there. So when the Romans left, these invasions started. And depending on how you want to look at them, history and historians have broken them up by tribes and eras. But if you wanted to take sort of a long view, you could say that the eastern British Isles were under attack from seafaring Scandinavian or Germanic people from late Roman times all the way up to past 1066. But as I said, historians have broken them down by tribes. And the peoples that were coming as the Romans were leaving were these Angles and Saxons and Frisians and Jutes. And depending on whether or not you believe in the legend of King Arthur, this is when he was supposed to have lived this time period. Somewhere between the late 300s and the late 500s AD. And King Arthur was supposed to be this Romano-British king or warlord who led the resistance against these Saxon invaders from the East. But like any tragic historic defense. Eventually, after Arthur's death, the east of England, for the most part, is overrun by these settlers. And eventually, after lots of warlords and periods of turmoil, the Saxons consolidate their rule over England. They never conquer the north, where the Scots are. They never conquer fully the west, where the Welsh are. But they settle there. And England becomes no longer a Romano-British culture and ethnic group, but a Saxon-Germanic one. And yet, no sooner do the Saxons consolidate their rule over England than they themselves are subject to more pressure from Eastern Scandinavian and Germanic seafaring peoples. It just must have been the obvious target if you lived in Norway or Denmark to take that jaunt across the North Sea and raid the prosperous English coastline. And the Saxons, as I said themselves, now found themselves subject to the exact same kind of raids they had subjected the Romano-British to. And these raids were effective. Mainly the Danes... But in some places, the Norwegians not only raided with impunity from about the depending on who you believe, the traditional dates, the late 700s, but some have taken it as far back as the late 600s, the coastlines of Britain and started to settle just like the Saxons had settled in parts of England. Now, eventually, you even ended up with Viking rulers as the rulers of England in 10. The 10, early ten hundreds, 1015, you had Canute, a Viking king himself, ruling over England. So the England we're talking about by the time leading up to 1066 and the Battle of Hastings and the beginning of the early Middle Ages and all that is essentially a Scandinavian sort of country you would put it in the Scandinavian realm of nations rather than attach it to Europe at that time. It seemed like one of those places. The population spoke a language that the Vikings might understand, the Saxons might understand on continental Europe. And that's not the only Viking connection to this story because there were several ways to deal with Vikings. Most of them involved bribery giving them something to buy them off so that they went and bothered someone else. In England they used something called Danegeld, which was a special tax that would be levied on the population or some of the population in order to raise money to buy these Vikings off. Well, when the Vikings were raiding continental Europe though, northern France specifically the French king was not powerful enough to drive them off And was spending a lot of money already buying Vikings off. Didn't have a ton of money to begin with. Got the bright idea that maybe he could just give up some of this vulnerable territory. That he couldn't defend anyway. To one of these strong Viking lords. And then tell him he had to defend it. And that he was your vassal. So basically you're giving up actual control of the land. For nominal control of this guy you're giving the land to. And this guy has to get his own men who happened to be Vikings, to defend it from Vikings. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, A Norman... Well, that's jumping ahead, isn't it? That was the French word, by the way. Call them Normans. Northmen. One of these guys, a Dane, known to history as Rollo, took the French king up on the offer, settled his men and his people in a place called Normandy, the land of the Northmen, and started to become civilized. You fast forward two generations, and these Normani, these Normans, speak French now. They're Christians instead of pagans. And in a lot of ways look like Frenchmen. But not all the ways. They retained that fervor that the Vikings themselves were known for, and now it was blended with Christianity, and not the kind of Christianity that we're accustomed to today. A Christianity that was more of a warrior religion than it is now. It was peaceful for the times, I guess you could say, but the times were as violent as all get-out. So, by today's standards, the Christianity the Normans were practicing would look more like one of the more warlike, extremist Islamic sects, I think. Maybe not quite that much, but the blending of Viking warlike fervor and fervent Christianity did not lessen the martial value of the Normans. Let's just say that. It enhanced it. So, now let's fast forward three generations. I think it was three generations, might have been four, from Rollo. And you have William the Bastard. William the Bastard is a Norman duke who rules Normandy, the, now the traditional fief of these people, this race that appeared after Rollo settled in northern France and has disappeared since, called the Normans. Some historians have argued that they were never a separate people But others make the point that if a people has a national identity and considers themselves a separate people, you are almost by default a separate people. And these Normans felt themselves a separate group. And if you believe history, a lot of it written by Normans on this subject, a Saxon earl ended up In the hands of the Normans. Now, we don't know how. We don't know if he was a hostage or if, like one source said, he was looking for help with a problem. But this Saxon earl named Harold Godwinson ended up in Norman hands for a while. And he was treated well, as hostages often were, in a sort of chivalrous manner before chivalry. At least the Normans say they treated him well. But... While he was there, the Norman chroniclers say that he promised William the Bastard that if he was ever going to be in line for the throne of England, that he would deny it. He wouldn't take it. He wouldn't take the crown. And this starts our story off. Because the king of England, Edward the Confessor, is what history remembers him as, a pious man, but not a strong king. In January 1066, he dies. His child is young. And the barons, or the functional equivalent of the time, of these Saxons who ruled England, picked Harold Godwinson to be their king instead. Harold Godwinson was the son-in-law of Edward the Confessor. He'd already, some said, been ruling sort of through Edward For a while, anyway, Edward being a weaker king and Harold being a strong, dominant personality. But, according to the Norman chroniclers, this is exactly the act that Harold promised not to do to William the Bastard, who also had a claim on that throne. And this is what sets into motion a series of events that touches off this amazing year, 1066, that could have gone a number of different ways, any of which would have changed history radically. And the first what if you can say is, what if Harold had really made that oath to William the Bastard and really lived up to it? What if Harold says, listen, I promised I wouldn't do this. Um, I can't be the king, you've got to pick someone else. Might be William the Bastard, might not be William the Bastard. But already history's taken a massive course change, hasn't it? Because, of course, no matter what Harold promised William, Edward the Confessor didn't have to leave the crown to him. Leave the crown to anybody he wants, right? So, that's our first what-if. But, you see, when Edward the Confessor died, it wasn't just Harold that had a claim to the throne. Of course, Edward gave it to him. But Harold had a brother. brother's name was Tostig Godwinson. And Tostig had a beef. Thought he deserved the crown and remember the way some of these early Germanic societies thought there was a might makes right sort of ethos going on that's why there was something called a trial by combat in later medieval times where two men would fight and whoever won was perceived to have been right because you know, God had favored them in the combat well Tostig went and got some powerful help went to the king of Norway a famous man named Harald Hardrada basically said something to the effect of, look, this should be my crown. I have just as much of a claim as Harold. Why don't you give me some men and an army and come on over with me and we'll take England? After all, was something the Vikings and the Germanic seafaring fierce people from the East had been successful doing before? There was a a track record to indicate had a good chance of working. And now here's where everything gets interesting. Because... Edward, the confessor, dies in January and all of these forces now start lining up. Harold trying to consolidate his new power as the new king of England, taking over from a man who'd been rather weak, especially in military matters. Harold had to get his act together fast. Because everybody knew England was a prize and there were other contenders for the throne. And one of them was William, right across the English Channel. William does something really interesting. He doesn't do what you might think a Norman duke would do, which is get all his Norman subjects together, form an army with them, cross the Channel, and go to England and go to war. For a lot of reasons he doesn't do this. For one, might not have been that good of an army. He didn't want to necessarily grab a whole bunch of peasants and throw them together and try to make soldiers out of them. For another thing, if you take your whole army over the English Channel, and it's in the middle of a country where they have a few enemies... Who's to say that someone won't just march into Normandy while you're gone? So William does something interesting. He puts out a call on a contingency fee basis to areas all around him and says, I'm going into England. If we win, I'm going to give you a share of the spoils, whether it's money or land and titles. But you come with me on this speculative venture. And if we win, you'll get a piece of the action. He was smart about it, too. He went to the Pope, got a blessing from him and a special banner, basically telling everyone who could see the banner that there was a special blessing from the Pope, made it look all legitimate, and then sat at the coastline and waited for people to arrive. And they did, from all over Western Europe. There were French knights who showed up. And when we use the term knight in this period, it's because a lot of historians have, but these aren't knights that show up. This is heavy cavalry, guys with a helmet, uh, male jerkin, probably about to the knees. Um, big old teardrop shaped shield in most cases. And a lance, which was sometimes thrown overhand and not thrusts. These are proto knights. History, the Latin term says, is Milites. And the Milites began showing up from all over. Breton Milites. Some. Burgundian Melites, Melites from all over the area. And with them came mercenaries and foot troops, archers and heavy infantry. And as these folks camped out on the coast, a fleet was readied, and William started waiting for good weather. And this becomes another what if for us the big weather factor at the English Channel. Because Harold realizes what's going on right over the English Channel. It's too close for him to not understand that this preparation is beginning. So he readies the powerful English war fleet and they get out there in the channel and they start patrolling. This is a what if could have happened as well. What if the Norman transports get intercepted by the British war fleet while they're in the English Channel? You could have had the same thing happened with England that has been their trademark defense ever since 1066, right? Control of the seas. Might have sunk that Norman invasion force the way Adolf Hitler's Germans would have been sunk trying to cross the channel in 1940 or 41. The weather, a big factor, because the English war fleet was out, but Harold couldn't cross the channel because the weather was bad. But the other Harold could. Harold Hardrada... And Tostig Godwinson brought a Norwegian army over the North Sea while all this is going on. This is on the other side of England, the northern part. So you got Harold down in the south, readying an army to face the Normans who he's thinking are going to cross the first day they get some good weather, and here he gets a Viking invasion in the north, a couple hundred miles away. Well, Harold has to make a decision, and this is where the drama happens in this story. It's worth a mini-series, I think. But Harold has to decide what the bigger danger is. He has to gamble. He has to decide that the weather's going to stay bad. Or that the Viking invasion in the North can be contained in the North and wait for William in London. Harold's decision was probably helped when a couple of English earls who were on the scene up north were defeated at a battle called Gate Fulford, And that's another what if. What if the Vikings had been defeated at Gate Fulford right there and then? Harold wouldn't have had to go up north at all. But that's the decision he ended up making after those two earls were defeated at Fulford. He and his soldiers, as many of them as he can put together, do this amazing, I think it's a couple hundred miles up north to meet the, the Norwegian army, which is really a bunch of Vikings, but... It was a national army as opposed to a bunch of raiders. History records they had about 300 Viking ships, with anywhere from 50 to 100 Vikings in each ship. So it was a pretty large army. The Saxons get up there in record time, and they surprise the Vikings, who, because it is warm, have taken off their armor... They are resting on either side of a river, recovering from the earlier battle. They also have a bunch of Vikings who are back a couple miles with the ships that brought them over guarding them. And the Saxons fall on them in what is considered to be a massacre. We're told by the chroniclers that the Vikings on the Saxon side, the initial Saxon side of the river, are wiped out almost immediately the ones on the other side of the river would have been um, similarly treated except history records a single Viking champion, a massive man standing on the bridge, separating, that was spanning the river, holding off the Saxons for a long period of time by himself. Killed 40 or something like that. He was eventually killed when someone went under the bridge and stabbed him from underneath. But, by again, the drama, by holding off the Saxons, he gave his countrymen a little time to prepare for the onslaught. But, soon after, both Tostig Godwinson and Harold Hardrada are killed, Hardrada reportedly, by an arrow in the throat. And the relief force that had run up from guarding the ships, some of those people died of exhaustion, the rest were quickly killed because they arrived on the battlefield exhausted. And the Saxons gain this great victory. And that's just about the time that the weather clears over the English Channel and William crosses over with his army. The what-ifs are all over the place on this. What if... Harold can't beat the Vikings at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which is what it's called? What if he loses that battle? Well, then that Viking army... Keeps moving down England and Harold Hardrada and Tostig Godwins and make a claim for the English crown. Maybe they fight William of Normandy at some point after he crosses over for the British crown. Or maybe that Viking army's in no shape to do anything and William just comes over and takes England anyway. Maybe the Norwegians send more troops. There's a lot of things that could happen. In fact, there were a couple of powerful northern earls, Saxon earls, who didn't help. Harold, either there or later at the Battle of Hastings. What if they decided to throw their lot in with their king? There were jealousies and political reasons why they didn't. They ended up being picked off later after the Battle of Hastings by William, showing that they should have thrown their lot in with Harold when they had a chance. In any case, they didn't at Stamford Bridge, and what if they had? In any case, the Saxons win, William crosses over, and Harold has to make another decision. The decision is, do you let your army rest and recoup and take it slow, back down to the south of your country, let William get away with murder while you regroup, or do you run down there as fast as you can with what you can and try to stop him initially on the beach or close to it because that's where William and his army were camping. Harold decided he couldn't wait. He took what troops he could from the battle, and remember this is moments afterwards practically, maybe a couple of days. He has to run. They just fought a battle. People are dead. People are wounded. People are tired. Material is damaged. He grabs his best troops and makes another run, another amazingly quick run by the standards of the day, down south. Picking up who he can along the way, sending the message to raise a general levy, getting some furred, as they were called, F-Y-R-D- Together, the Ferd or the local population. Some of them better armed than others. And they run down and block the road to London. Some historians have suggested that um, they really didn't de- decide to block the road from London, that that's just where the two armies got close enough together that they started camping where they wanted to be. But most historians think that that was the position chosen by Harold to defend against the Normans. A hill known as Senlac, in an area we call Hastings. And Senlac is not as steep a hill as many people envision when they think of the Battle of Hastings. It is a interestingly shaped one, though, with a wood behind it and edges that help protect your flanks. And that's what Harold was thinking about when he aligned his troops up on this hill with his best troops in front, people called Housecarls. The Housecarls were professional soldiers that worked for Harold. Most of them would have had full suits of mail all the way down to their knees, helmets that looked a lot like the Normans with a little nose piece over the nose, many of them carrying the famous Danish axe that had a haft on it that could have been six feet long and a blade that might have been up to, some of the chroniclers say, two feet long. It could fell a horse with one blow. Behind these housecarls stood the lesser armored people and the furred, the people who were the locals, some of the better armed locals, standing behind to give support behind the housecarls, They had very few, if any, bow-armed troops, and they had no cavalry. Unfortunately for them, the Normans did have cavalry. Quite a bit of cavalry by the standards of the day. And... This would have been a fatal arm for the Saxons to have to confront on a flat plain anywhere. The Normans would have just outflanked them and it just would have been a very quick battle. Especially when they had foot troops to go with the cavalry. You can play the two off against each other. The Saxons realized this, stationed themselves on the hill in a position that they thought the Normans had to cross. And they waited. And they didn't have to wait long. William arrived with his soldiers and he had the Melites cavalry, the heavy cavalry. He had mercenary heavy infantry, guys who probably looked a lot like the House Carls, but not quite as well armored, not quite as well armed and not quite as well trained and motivated, but professionals nonetheless, and also archers, probably crossbowmen with a very early crossbow, nothing quite like you're probably thinking, but When one side has significant missile weapons and the other doesn't, it creates one of those advantages where the Saxons have to sit there and can't really respond to the Norman missile fire. Now, granted, the missile fire is uphill, which nullifies some of its effects, and the Saxons are standing in their traditional shield wall formation, which is when they stand so close that the shield of the man next to you actually overlaps yours a little bit if you do it right. We don't know, but they may have been doing a little of the overhead shield holding as well. It's a formidable barrier anyway, and then when you add the uphill thing at the same time, the missile fire was probably not that effective. The Normans sent the foot troops up to break the shield wall, and this is where the battle starts, and there's a million what-ifs that go on here as well. The Norman infantry assaulted the shield wall At no noticeable effect. Matter of fact, uh, that would be tough. The House Carles excelled at this kind of warfare. They were very good troops. And between the archers and the foot troops, the Normans were having um, not that good of a time early on. And this is one of those battles really where the Saxons had no control over the outcome. The Normans were going to have to decide at some point to give up or they were going to win. The Saxons were just going to stand there. The Norman Cavalry then charged and was repulsed. Now, we don't know how long this went on. This is considered to be one of the longer battles of the period, so it was hard fought, and these things may have occurred many times. The Norman Cavalry may have charged many times. They may have sent the infantry in many times. There were rest periods, we know. But at some point, history says, and this is not confirmable, that one arrow found an important mark that one of the Norman arrows hit the king, Harold, the Saxon king, in the eye. Again, we don't know for sure. As a matter of fact, it's one of the medieval symbols of what happens to a perjurer to get an arrow in the eye. And, of course, what would the Norman chroniclers have said that Harold was guilty of? Well, he'd said he wasn't going to take the crown of England, so he perjured himself. So maybe this is a artistic, a convention thing from later, but supposedly Harold gets an arrow in the eye he pulls it out and he keeps fighting, but the Saxon ranks are thinning and eventually some of these Norman knights are able to break through cut down Harold's standard and cut Harold down too his brothers, two of them which were commanding parts of the Saxon line had also been killed and Eventually, the Saxon line breaks and runs. Now, a little side note, it ran backwards into the forest, which was what the position was designed to do, give them a way out should they have to run, and there was this terrible ditch back behind the hill. Some chroniclers say it was loaded with stakes and all sorts of entrapments, and a lot of Norman knights fell into it while pursuing the Saxons. It was something they remembered well enough to give a name to. And some of the worst uh, Norman casualties to some of the most um, prominent figures may have occurred right there in that ditch after the battle itself was over. That's another what if. Because had the Norman Duke been killed in that pursuit, there's another what if for you right there. Actually, there was a scare during the battle, and a rumor came up, the chroniclers say, that William had been killed during the fighting that was going on. And in order to prove to his troops that he was alive, William raised his helmet and rode along the front of his line, or so history says. Because think of that what if. If William dies in the battle, what's the point of the battle anymore? The point wasn't to conquer England for a bunch of mercenaries on a capitalistic quest. The point was that you had a legitimate claimant to the English crown and he was there fighting a battle to gain that crown, if he dies, why are you there? So what if William had died, and he was fighting in the front ranks? He certainly could have. And you could put the question another way as well. What if Harold the Saxon doesn't die? What if he doesn't get the arrow in the eye? Or what if he isn't killed by the Norman Knights? Do his men stand there longer? Nobody really knows what the Saxon victory conditions were going to be just waiting for the Normans to go home, or were they going to charge down that hill at some point? Because they did charge down the hill at several times, but it was always a mistake. It's part of what cost them the battle. History also doesn't record if the conditions that led up to the Saxons breaking ranks and charging the Normans was a designed play or not, to take a sporting quote, because the Normans may have done something ...that was called a feigned flight. And a feigned flight is something that the eastern horse archers, the Mongols, for example, are famous for. What it consists of is attacking your foe... ...and then turning around and running away as though you had been beaten. And this causes your foe to break, break ranks and chase you... ...which then opens them up to a devastating counterattack. Modern historians believe, a lot of them anyway that the Normans were doing something like that, and that that's what tempted the Saxons out of their position on Senlac Hill. The older historians from 100 years ago, the guys like Hanstelbrook and Oman and those guys, they don't believe that the Normans could have done that. That was just too much sophistication. It's a hard enough move to do in modern war, to detach yourself from the enemy during combat, run away all at the same time, and then turn around and counterattack. But some of the troops in the Norman army were accustomed to doing that anyway, the Breton soldiers. And it was they, the Chronicler said, that were the first ones to break ranks and run. And when they did, a large part of the Saxon force chased them down the hill. And then they were easy prey once they got to the flatlands for the Norman cavalry. So you could ask another what if right there. What if the Saxons hadn't chased the Normans when the Normans were running away? Hadn't run down that hill in large numbers only to get massacred in bunches on the ground on the flatlands. Happened several times, the chroniclers said. What if they just hadn't broken ranks? In any case, the Norman victory at Hastings is considered to be one of the most influential battles of history and also one of the most successful the people who signed on for the little speculative expedition to England with William and his little capitalistic endeavor profited handsomely by doing it. The nation, the kingdom of England was divided up and many of the powerful figures in the Hastings campaign were given titles and land in England, which means that Much of the royalty of England are the royalty of England and the nobility of England because they signed on for this expedition with William of Normandy. That is the spoils that they reaped from Hastings. A lot of the foot soldiers and whatnot were paid off in cash. But think of what happens if William is defeated at Hastings or if he dies. Think about how different England would be. First of all, probably would have stayed a more Scandinavian nation, the way that it seemed before the Normans invaded. Think about all of the French overlays to the English language that would be gone. In addition, think about the next couple hundred years of English history. They, because of the Norman dynasty that ruled England, had significant lands on the continent, the so called Angevin lands. A lot of the wars with, say, Richard the Lionheart, for example, in what is now modern-day France, British territories, though, in modern-day France, were British because they were Norman. Normans owned them before they invaded England, owned them afterwards, too, a huge bone of contention between the English and the French people. And what if the Vikings came back? Because they did. But what if they were successful? The Normans were the last time that England was successfully invaded, and one of the reasons why, I think, is because they were the ones who finally put into place the sort of defenses that would prevent another successful invasion from the fierce seafaring peoples to the east of the British Isles. The Normans fought Viking armies many times, raiders especially, They're the ones who beat off the attacks and developed a system whereby the next time the Vikings landed on some beach somewhere, they were going to be opposed quickly and with determination. The Normans also made inroads into the other parts of England. They're the ones who were strong enough to build castles and take over parts of Wales, move up more to the north of England, William the Conqueror and his descendants formed the nucleus of what became England and forged with the same intensity that they showed on the continent in modern-day France and in Italy and in the Crusades. The Normans were one of the most determined, intense, and interesting peoples of their day. And it was their molding of a Viking, Saxon, Celtic, roman admixture of peoples and ethnic groups in england that gave us this country that has been such a part of world history ever since and had things not gone exactly the way that they did in all these what ifs that we've talked about the resulting changes in all of our lives would be noticeable you think in the simpsons when Homer steps on a flower, and all history's changed, is far-fetched? Maybe a little bit. But any of those what-ifs we talk about happen in 1066 differently, and I might not be sitting here talking to you right now. There's a postscript to this story, and that is 15 years later, in 1081. 1081. The Normans in Italy are besieging a town, a Byzantine town, and the Byzantines arrive with a force to relieve the siege. And in this Byzantine force are their elite crack soldiers, the Varangian guards. The Varangian guards, who formerly had been composed of Vikings, it was a Viking mercenary force that guarded the emperor at one point in Byzantium that became a powerful field force as well. And there were thousands of them in 1081 at this battle called Durazzo. And among these Varangian guardsmen were English housecarls who had fled the British Isles after the Battle of Hastings, and certainly the sons and relatives of housecarls who had fought at the Battle of Hastings. And here they were to face. Norman knights again, and probably Norman knights, some of whom had fought at Hastings. At that battle, the initial cavalry charge launched against the Varangians was repulsed. And this time, unlike how the House Carls maintained their ground at Senlac, the House Carls charged the fleeing cavalry, more like the Ferd had done at Hastings. But it's understandable when you think about some of the emotions that may have been flowing through some of these Varangian guardsmen's minds. Maybe there was a little payback at work. In any case, they pursued that cavalry, and while they were doing so, Norman cavalry on their flanks charged them and all but wiped them out. The survivors were burned by the Normans in a church where they had taken refuge. And it's almost like history putting an exclamation point on the fact that the... Age of the Viking, Anglo, Danish style, Dark Age fighting with the axe and the infantry and the impetuosity was giving way to a new era. That's maybe why historians feel so comfortable dividing the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages at 1066. Cuz at Durazzo, once again, the superiority of the mailed Norman-style knight proved itself against the remnants of what was left of the old northern world that died in 1066 with an arrow in the throat to Harold Hardrada and an arrow in the eye for Harold Godwinson. If you would like to help spread the word about hardcore history, vote for the show on PodcastAlley.com. December 7th 1941 a date which will live in infamy it's history It's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind the events <laughs> Would have how fine you know. Not quite to the more, yeah, so man. Oh. To the word goes for humanity from this time and place. The figure takes pride in the words. Ish bin ein Violina. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev <sighs> teared down this world. The drama. Marine six the Manhattan urgent. Marine six. Now two has had a major explosion and what appears in the entire area. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know deep whether questions. or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history.